Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Words matter. I think as a society, the more enlightened members of this society anyway, have decided that illegals is not a good way to talk about people. People can't be illegal and kind of reducing them to that adjective seems like an aggressive and hostile step. So most of us or some of us try not to talk that way. We try to talk about people here, you know, here illegally, maybe something like that. So that's what we're going to talk about on the show today is how words are used, how words change whether a word like literally means anything anymore. It gets used in so many slapdash fashions. We'll also talk about the way that political leaders do use words, sometimes to obfuscate their abominations. So talk about language coming up after this news. Just tell me what happened from the beginning. We've been to a bar, a nice place, and uh, I got chatting with one of the waitresses, and Karen weren't happy with that, so when we get back to the hotel, we end up having a bit of a ding-dong, don't we? <sighs> She's always getting at me, saying I weren't a real man. Wasn't a real man. What? It's not weren't, it's wasn't. Oh. Go on. Well, then I don't know how it happened, but suddenly there's a knife in my hands. And you know, my old man was a butcher, so I know how to handle knives. He, he learned us how to cut up a beast. Taught. What? Taught you how to cut up a beast. Yeah, well, then, then I've done it. Did it. Did it. Stabbed her! Over and over and over, and I looked down, and she weren't, wasn't moving no more anymore. God help me, I don't know how it happened, but it was an accident, I swear. Hey, you've got to help me, Mr. Holmes. Everyone says you're the best. Without you, I'll get hung for this. No, no, Mr. Pyrrhic, not at all. Hanged, yes. So that is, uh, of course, Sherlock Holmes uh, talking to uh, a suspect uh, and correcting his grammar all the way through. Why are we playing this for you? Well, first, I must introduce our guest for the first two segments of today's show and tell you that the third segment of today's show is about the year in swearing. Uh, but today we're going to talk about language here uh, with Lane Green, the language columnist and editor at The Economist uh, and the author of Talk on the Wild Side, Why Language Can't Be Tamed. So, Lane Green, welcome to our show. And we should say that this uh, clip that we just played is is your choice. Uh, so tell us what you hear in it. 
Well, this is the very first thing I describe in the new book. And in this scene, what we do is we set up Sherlock Holmes, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, as a real grammar stickler, someone who, who won't let the little things slide, even in a meeting with a man who is fearing uh, an execution. The scene is set in uh, Belarus, I should say. And he corrects him all the way through. And then just in the scene right after this one, he's talking with Dr. Watson, his roommate, uh, played by Martin Freeman, and he's sitting there on the couch when uh, he says he's defending his interest or non-interest in the news, and he says, I don't care who's prime minister or who's sleeping with who. So we have this first scene where at some length we set up Sherlock Holmes as this great grammar stickler, and in the very next scene he omits whom, where we normally have it, who's sleeping with whom. He clearly says, who's sleeping with who? I thought this was going to be a clue to the mystery in this show, and it just wasn't. It was just a mistake on the part of the same writers who had just spent all this screen time setting someone up as a uncompromising grammar, grammar pedant or stickler. Right. So in, in that clip that we heard, uh, Sherlock is being what uh, we and what you call a prescriptivist. He has a very specific idea about how the language works, and he's sort of imposing his will on the suspect. And you, one could argue that it works, that ultimately, because he forces the man to talk the way that he wants him to talk, he ultimately forces the man to tell him what he wants to be told. Uh, You know, by the end, he goes, yes, I I did. I stabbed her. Uh, And that perhaps, I mean, it's either Sherlock who we we understand. I mean, the Cumberbatch Sherlock is sort of this flawed guy who clearly has maybe some neurological spectrum kind of issues. Uh, So they could be that. But it also could be that he really does successfully impose his will as a prescriptivist and break the guy down with grammar. I don't know. React to that. Uh, you know, I, I had not thought of that theory until somebody floated it to me on Twitter that he, he was very cleverly getting under the guy's skin. I saw that behavior of a man who just couldn't couldn't leave it be. Um, he he's very sort of he's very sort of scowling and, and humorless in lots of other scenes in the show. Where he just you know he, he's so convinced of his rightness. He, he, he there's a sort of um, superiority in his way a lot of the time. And so I, I thought it was in character there. But um, somebody pointed that possibility you just mentioned out to me, and I have to admit that that had escaped me. So maybe I had a little bit of tunnel vision there. Well, so prescriptivism's antonym is descriptivism. And is it fair to say that you're kind of a descriptivist more than a prescriptivist? I think it's fair to say that I'm both. And the reason is that I'm also an editor. So when a piece of uh, writing comes into my inbox and I have to get it ready for publication, I have to do lots of things to it. We format it and we set it into economist house style. That means things like British spelling and using Mr. and Ms. as titles. But it also means clearing up ambiguities, and if someone has made a, a tricky mistake, say with something like whom, which can trick people, um, I change it. I fix it. So it's not that I think the language has no rules. The essence of descriptivism, and I am a descriptivist, is that those rules can be described by the actual usage of people. So we know a rule is fake when almost nobody ever actually obeys it. And we know a rule is a good one when in describing the language accurately, we see that that educated, successful speakers do obey a rule all the time. Then that is a part of standard educated English. Um, so in, in being against prescriptivism, it's not that I'm against all rules. I'm against rules that are just imposed rather than derived from actual usage. There's loads and loads of real rules in English, and I absolutely do enforce those because I am an editor. 
All right, so um, let's go to the second part of Sherlock then. So he he does this who is sleeping with who uh, and as opposed to who is sleeping with whom. So where do you come down on that? So whom is one of six words in the English language which still show a difference when the word is a object, either the object of a preposition or a direct object, as opposed to the subject of a clause. There's just six words. They're I, which becomes me. There's he, which becomes him, she and her, we and us, they and them, and who and whom. And who and whom is by far the rarest of these words because who and whom are only used in questions and relative clauses. And so uh, because it doesn't show up very often, whom is kind of collapsing into who. And so people say things like, I don't care who's sleeping with who. Every single day, probably most even educated people don't say whom in that circumstance anymore. It used to be the case a thousand years ago that almost every noun, pronoun, and a bunch of other words in English showed this distinction. Now we're just down to six words, and that list is going from six to five. As an editor, if someone gets a who, whom thing wrong by these lights, I I correct it because our readers expect whom in a sort of standard traditional way. As a descriptivist, I can say whom may be passing out of the language. In In 100 or 200 more years, it may be gone. So you can be both at the same time, and I think I I am a bit of both because at this point in 2018, in writing, in The Economist, people expect standard whom usage and I enforce it. But if I take a step back and I see whom disappearing, I don't worry about it because that's already happened to almost every noun in English already. Yeah, so I mean, you know, you said there's the there's the six, and so the the other ones are completely intact. I would not say me hit she with my car. Um, uh, the, there is an, a nominative and an objective case uh, for those kinds of personal pronouns, and, and I guess I you know the, the I it seems to me that what we do these days at the descriptive level is we use what sounds right. We use what sounds felicitous. So I would be uncomfortable saying with who am I sleeping. Um, first of all, I should probably know who I'm sleeping with. But second of all, uh, with whom just sounds so much better. However, if I were going to be willing to strand a preposition, which I think you think I should be able to do, I could say, who am I sleeping with? And that sounds better. I mean, it isn't one is I mean, one's grammatically correct. The other one's grammatically incorrect. But there's something about the way things sound. Right. Well, definitely. Um, there's a distinction I mentioned in the book, and it's not mine. A guy called Jeff Pullum, who's a great linguist at the University of Edinburgh, came up with a really simple two-part dichotomy. He calls normal and formal the two main registers in English. And things like who I was sleeping with is normal, and the person with whom I was sleeping is formal. People don't say things like with whom I was sleeping in casual conversation. If you were bragging about a conquest, say, you wouldn't say the girl with whom I was sleeping unless you wanted to pretty well irritate the person you were talking to. So uh, one is normal, one is formal, and formal is usually in writing or very formal speech, a prepared speech, for example, and normal is relaxed writing, which we do more and more of on Twitter, Facebook, uh, text message, and uh, 95% of speech. And the thing I want to get across is that both are okay. Normal is not a broken version of formal. It's a different variety of the language. And we often just have two options. We can say it's or it is. Uh, There's lots of places where we have a choice. We can say the king's son or the son of the king. One comes from one part of the language and one comes from another. We don't have to have just one way of doing everything. And very often the toolkit gives us a normal and a formal choice. So I just have to, uh, uh, I guess, reveal 
my prescriptivist training and education. To this day, I can say what the state of being verbs are. These are the verbs that do take a predicate a nominative or a predicate adjective. Uh, those would be be, is, am, are, was, were, been, appear, become, feel, look, seem, sound, smell, taste, grow, remain, stay. Um, and they don't always work as state of being verbs, particularly some of the latter ones, but they are state of being verbs. So uh, I think one of the places that we routinely accept violations of language is in music. Because if, if you're singing something, you kind of don't notice it. And just the other day, Lane, I, I noticed uh, a song that I, I've known and loved for many years. But there's actually something wrong with it, and it actually involves state of being verbs. Yes, I will. If you should ever find someone new, I know he better be good to you. Cause if he doesn't, I'll be dead. So, this never really grated against my ears before, but as you can say, see, he says he better be good to you, because if he doesn't, I'll be there. Well, th- there's a failure of agreement, right? Um, I have to admit, that had never occurred to me in all the years of listening to that song, which I take it is, is what you're saying as yeah. well. He better be good to you, or I'll be there. I, I, I'm, I'm not even seeing the failure of agreement. Oh, well, honest, see, see, so, he better, so he better be good to you, or if he, because if he isn't, I'll be there. In other words, doesn't isn't the right correspondence oh. to be good to you. Uh, he better be good to you because if he doesn't, no. He better be good to you because if saying. he isn't yeah. good to you, I'll be there. I see what you mean. I'd call that a failure of what we call parallelism. So yeah. you, you say things like, I like hiking, running, and skiing, not I like hiking, running, and to ski. And so, you know, in coordinate constructions like that, we expect them to have the same grammatical. I see what you, what you mean now. And this is actually very common. You, you, people sort of lose track of what they said the first in the first part of the sentence. And so later on, they use a, a different grammatical form that sort of seems... Uh, semantically to correspond, and it does. It, they refer to the same thing, but they don't have the same grammatical form. That seems to be what's going right. on. Right. So then the argument is, as long as you understand the meaning, it's okay. Or is it? Well, no, I wouldn't say that, because I can say all kinds of garbled things that you could understand. If I said, me, love, she, you would understand it, but that is in no way standard. So I think the descriptivist position is often caricatured as, hey, man, whatever you feel like, as long as the point gets across. No, that's, that's not the descriptivist <laughs> position at all. Uh, if you describe English accurately, uh, pronouns in the nominative case appear as the subjective sentences of subjects of tense clauses, right? So if I say I love her, it has to be in that form. I can't say me love she, and no descriptivist thinks that I can. That's just, that's just not uh, part, of the, part of the rules. Fortunately, it's not one of the things we have to argue about much because it's so straightforward this rule is embedded in every native speaker of the language's mind, so we don't have to we don't have to dispute it. The disputed cases, the ones where there's either a change in progress going on, and like like with whom, where it's passing out of the language probably, or there's a legitimate disagreement as to what the right answer to something is. And there's there's lots of those, including what comes after a a uh, sort of state of being verb. Do you say it's me or do you say it is I? Right. Um, and there's a real there's a real dispute as to what has to be the right case. And I think the answer is both. I think it is I is standard but very, very formal. And it's me is also standard and very, very normal. Um, if you knock on the door and your spouse says, who's there? 
If you say, it is I, you probably have a different kind of relationship with your spouse than I do. But uh, it's me is what 99 out of 100 people say naturally. Right. So and it is the normal thing to say in that position. Let's talk about a specific contemporary word, a word that you've actually thought a lot about. It's a word that's kind of, I would say, circling the drain right now. That is the word literally. Okay, so here's where I'm a bit of a traditionalist. And I think every, every descriptivist gets to pick a few places where they're going to say, look, I know the tide is turning, but I don't like where it's turning. And in the case of literally, uh, there's two ways to kind of misuse it. You can, uh, you can use it figuratively and say my head literally exploded, which is, uh, to me, wrong. And I wouldn't want that to go into a page in The Economist that I edited. And then there's just using it constantly where it's not needed, like, oh, the train was literally so late. It's very common here in Britain where I live, and um, I just feel like it's unnecessary there, although not exactly wrong. But um, the, the figurative usage that I described, the sort of my head literally exploded, it has an old history. It's not something that people started doing 15 years ago or in the 60s when everyone got lazy. It is uh, at least as old as Nabokov and Joyce who both did it. There are writers much better than me who have used literally, figuratively, and it has a long history. It's in a lot of the dictionaries and so forth. Um, the reason I am a traditionalist on literally is because when you can use it in the way that I like to use it, it's really lovely and unique. It's not, it, it's not easily substituted for with another word. So I was on a holiday recently, and my son fell off his horse. A horse stopped. Suddenly, he went uh, over the horse's head and landed on his head. But he was fine. And he got back on the horse. And I told my mom, who worries about her grandchildren, and I said he literally got right back in the saddle. Now, we use literally uh, mostly, we use to get back in the saddle, mostly metaphorically, because we're not on horseback very often. In this case, we were literally on horseback, and he literally got right back in the saddle. And I was very pleased to be able to use that literally in that circumstance, because there's not a good substitute for it. And I, I meant this thing you're used to hearing as a figure of speech, I am using it literally in this unusual circumstance. And I like to highlight that. So I like traditional literally, but I don't insist that every other way of doing it is just 100% wrong. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how political leaders use language, usually, as George Orwell would tell you, to cover up some kind of abomination. Point, close quotation, period, dash, night and day, comma. You are the one, Dash. Only you, comma, beneath the moon, comma, and under the sun, semicolon. Whether near to me or far, dot, 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 it's no matter, comma, darling, comma, where you are, Dash, I think, comma. Night and day, period, new paragraph. Night and day, exclamation point, under the height of me, dash, there's an oh such a hungry yearning, comma, burning, parenthesis, inside of me, close parenthesis, period.
We are back. Uh, we are back with Lane Green. Uh, Lane Green uh, is um, uh, the author of the new book, uh, Talk on the Wild Side, Why Language Can't Be Tamed. He's a language columnist and editor at The Economist. So I, I would like to talk a little bit about the way language gets used in politics. Uh, maybe we'll just begin by, uh, by playing uh, a quote from our fearless leader. Uh, this is one that I, appears in your book. I've been on the circuit making speeches, and I hear my fellow Republicans, and they're wonderful people. I like them. They all want me to support them. They don't know how to bring it about. They come up to my office. I, I'm meeting with three of them in the next week, and they don't know. Are you running? Are you not running? Could we have your support? What do we do? How do we do it? I like them. And I hear their speeches. And they don't talk jobs, and they don't talk China. When was the last time you heard, China's killing us? They're devaluing their currency. So to there's a, a million things going on in this clip. I'm just going to kind of talk over it. But Donald Trump has a very particular way of talking. Um, and, and then pundits and news analysts have a particular way of trying to mine that talk for meaning. Uh, uh, Lane Green, what do you hear going on here? Well, I think actually uh, we're in the wrong modality. What I what I what I find interesting is what happens when this gets written down. Right. Uh, I hear one thing, and I see something very different when people transcribe that word for word. And when you do transcribe it word for word, and then send it around Twitter or whatever you do, it looks like word salad. It looks like this person is having a hemorrhage. The sentences don't end. He jumps from topic to topic in a way that seems crazy, um, and. You're, you're, it's just people, uh, journalists really missed how effective Donald Trump was speaking this way because they sent these clips around as transcripts. And if you listen to it again carefully, back to your question, what do I hear? I heard the audience start to cheer mm -hmm. when he said, when's the last time you hear China is killing us? It's a kind of random change of topic because he was talking about Republicans asking for his support just two seconds earlier. And he just abruptly shifts gears to China. But he, he signals that shift with tone of voice. And, you know, discursions like that, just going off on a tangent, are something that happen in speech all the time. In, in writing, it looks weird. It is weird. But in speech, it's perfectly normal. And what I heard was someone connecting with his audience. You can hear people murmuring. You can hear the sort of, yeah, starting to happen right there. And we, as journalists, really missed how effective Donald Trump was. So th there's another thing that goes on. It's certainly there in, in Orwell's essay on politics in the English language. I'm a little bit of a child of Watergate. During Watergate, this whole lexicon emerged of the way the Nixon White House talked. So uh, there were things like Ron Ziegler using the word inoperative to mean untrue. <laughs> we go, that statement is inoperative. Uh, he, there were things like at this point of time, which was this, this kind of little tick that uh, John Dean had. And phrases like third-rate burglary, smoking gun, hush money, stonewall, deep six, twist slowly, slowly in the wind. These all sort of became part of the English lang language in a way that they hadn't before. And, and I feel like some of that's going on with Trump. And I'm going to give you an example. I want you to react to it. Um, this is him uh, arguing with Chuck Schumer recently uh, in the White House. And, and listen to how he describes what he's going to do about the government shutdown. I am proud to shut down the government for border security, Chuck, because the people of this country don't want criminals and people that have lots of problems and drugs pouring into our country. So I will take the mantle. I will be the one to shut it down. I'm not going to blame you for it. The last time you shut it down, it didn't work. I will take the mantle Good. of shutting down. That is and I'm going to shut it down for border but security. Believe. 
So, Lane Green, mantle is kind of an interesting word, and typically what it means is kind of um, a, a status of authority that's passed from one person to another. So, you know, he took the mantle of leadership over, you know, the government or something like that. Um, he's using it in a very different way here. It's, it's an interesting word, and it's, you know, a good vocabulary word, but it seems to me that he's u- using it because he doesn't want to say the word blame. Yeah, I think you're right. When when Trump uses a sort of literary word like mantle, he often uses it in a slightly different way that confuses. <laughs> I say different. That's a sort of euphemism for wrong right there. But, um, you know, he's using it in a way that most people don't. And and, and so by by definition, if, if you're using a word in a confusing way that most of the speech community is thrown off by because they like that's not how you use mantle, then you kind of are using it wrong. But he does that a lot because he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't use words like mantle very often. One of the things I point out in the book is his language is very plain. Every single other word in that little clip was extremely ordinary. The, the language of the guy at the end of the bar and not the language of a kind of highfalutin politician. And so when he does use those words, he very often misuses them. Um, uh, one thing that I, I wanted to talk about before we run out of time, because it's something that I really hadn't thought about very much, is you have a whole chapter called Machines for Talking. And yes, we're starting to talk to our phones, to Siri, to Alexa, to smart speakers, stuff like that. Um, and, and the difficulty is, of course, if we all use language kind of differently and imprecisely and idiomatically and idiosyncratically, how can we speak to machines so that they will consistently understand us? What, what, have you, what are your thoughts about this? Well, machines just made this huge leap forward in the last couple of years and how good they are at understanding what we're saying when we speak, in producing their own speech, their own sounds that sound like a human voice, uh, in doing things like translating uh, from one language to another, in fulfilling requests. So you can not only ask Alexa, you know, what's the temperature going to be tomorrow in San Diego, but she can say back it's going to be 73 degrees and sunny, as it always is in San Diego. And... um, and what's going on is you can even re- misspeak and repair what you're trying to say. You can say, Alexa, what t- t- what's the temperature going to be in San Diego tomorrow? And they're getting so good that they'll often pick up that stumble and you know, the second half of your sentence. And what's going on inside is just a statistical guess. I've received this waveform, this, this, this uh, series of vibrations in the air that tend to correspond with these words in English, and these words tend to correspond with this request. He wants to know the temperature in San Diego. I heard those two key words. There's an 83% chance he's asking me to go to the National Weather Service database and get tomorrow's weather forecast in San Diego. That's, in a nutshell, what's going on in that box, or actually on the cloud servers in the case of Alexa, uh, is it's making a bunch of statistical guesses about what you said, what you meant, what you want. Yeah, I, I wish I've gotten really, really good. Yeah, I'm amazed by this, even in the context of, and I wish I'd preserved an example of this. Uh, but uh, when I use, when I uh, send a text message to somebody, and of course now you can dictate that uh, text message with voice recognition, and and what the thing will do is it'll it'll transcribe my words and and maybe hear it wrong, make a mistake. And then as I sort of click out uh, of the, the little microphone feature there, it'll adjust it. I guess in the way that you're saying, it'll review everything that I've just said and thought and think, no, he probably didn't mean that word. He meant this other word. I'm, I'm baffled and astonished that that can happen. Yeah, because it was happening in those few seconds is it's been sent off to, if you're using an iPhone, it's being sent off to Apple and it's being uh, looked at on Apple servers and it's coming back to you. And the, the tech under the hood has got a model of what words tend to follow what other words. So if you say, honey, I love, you know, Y, X, U, 
it knows that the next word is going to be you, not only because that's a common maybe spelling mistake for you, but also because it follows honey, I love. So it has a model of what English behavior looks like. And so it makes a guess with two clues. One is the probable spelling of the word, and one is the context, which words tend to follow which other words. It looks back at the previous word and maybe the word before that. Um, it doesn't look at the whole sentence. It doesn't have enough power to kind of parse the whole thing, but it does look a few words back. And so um, the, the, the guesses are, are, are getting better and better. And the more data the company has, in other words, the more examples of good English, the better the guesses will get. So as the data accumulates, these technologies keep getting better. Um, we've been talking with Lane Green, uh, the language columnist and editor at The Economist, the author of Talk on the Wild Side, Why Language Can't Be Tamed. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the urine swearing. I have to quickly mention that today's show is produced by Jonathan McPants, uh, and that tomorrow, if you're listening on Thursday, tomorrow we'll be doing the nose in New Haven, uh, and we're going to be talking about the Netflix series Bandersnatch. So thanks to Lane Green. Get ready for a lot of swearing, which we actually won't do. Ben Zimmer, this is Colin. Hi. Hi, how are you? Uh, I am fine. I'm fine. Uh, <laughs> Let's so get that out of the get way Get this out of the way. So I think what we're going to do here is allow you to speak freely, as we say, and then we'll just, we're, it's a pre-tape, so we, we can go in and bleep stuff. It could be a lot of bleeping, though, if we're... Uh, but that could be funny, too. Do you think that's preferable to just saying, you know, S this and S that? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can be persuaded one way or another. I mean, it could be like the good place where they say fork and shirt. Or frack in <laughs> Battlestar Galactica. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, in fact, sort of talking around it or euphemizing it, that could be really funny, too. So let's try euphemizing it, since that's what you've you've brought this up. You have a high comfort level with it. Uh, <laughs> all right, so, so we've been talking on the show about how language changes, and in a way, swearing is not a change in language in the sense that most of the familiar terms, even some of the unusual compounds of familiar bad words, have been around longer than you think, as our guest is about to point out to you. But on the other hand, the things that kind of creep into common parlance that you know enter through the Overton window into the world of semi-acceptability, that is one of the places that language does change. So to hear, here to help us understand that is Ben Zimmer, a linguist, lexicographer, and language columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Welcome back to the show, Ben Zimmer. Thanks for having me. So you give out every year the Tucker Awards for Excellence in Swearing. This will be the fourth annual year for them. They are named after who? Whom? That award is named after Malcolm Tucker. If anyone is a fan of the BBC show The Thick of It, which was sort of a uh, political satire, there was also a movie spin-off called In the Loop. Armando Iannucci, who created those shows, he would go on to do Veep for right. HBO. And there was wonderful swearing the character of Malcolm Tucker, played by Peter Capaldi. Right. I think, we, do we have that clip here right now? We, we might as well just play it to give people a sense of the loveliness of it all. Who cannot f*** me? Who cannot f*** me? I am unf***able. Oh. I have never been f***able. And if you f try and f*** me, you'll find my f***ing ass and f grow f***ing All right, now come and, and listen to me. Slap your f***ing 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 f***ing
Although all those bleeps were, for the most part, the F word used in various as various parts of speech, just to give you kind of a sense of of Malcolm Tucker. But that doesn't really do him justice. So when you're giving out awards, Ben Zimmer, what kind of criteria are you looking? Are you applying? What are you looking for from your potential recipients? Well, these uh, Tucker Awards. This is part of a group blog that I contribute to called Strong Language, and it calls itself a sweary blog about swearing. And it's really, um, as I explained, it's a place where, you know, people who think seriously about language can talk about things you might not be able to in more polite contexts. And so the Tucker Awards recognizes excellence in swearing every year. This, this is, as you say, the fourth year we've been doing it. And we're not just simply looking for, you know, uncreative swearing, but people who are using swearing for a particular effect, who have a kind of flair and might create certain waves in the way the way that they swear. It's interesting that people often complain about sort of the coarsening of the language and the culture, but we see that the use of swears or taboo language in general still can really have quite an impact when used effectively, and we try to recognize that with these awards. So, I mean, probably in the category of swearing by a, a world leader, Donald Trump, unsurprisingly, became famous over the past year for uh, apparently in a meeting, I, I don't think we ever got audio or anything like that, but apparently in a meeting referring to Haiti, El Salvador, uh, and the African continent entirely in one fell swoop, as you say, as either spithole countries or spithouse countries. Obviously, I'm I'm substituting a word here. So tell us about that. And wh- what does that mean in, in the context of the Tucker Awards? Well, Donald Trump did not get any awards uh, from us for his, uh, for use of, as you say, the um, the S-hole countries abuse that it was reported based on this meeting back in January of 2018 with lawmakers talking about immigration policy. You know, that, that was reported and shocked people, I think, that the president would be making these sorts of comments. And, you know, it was sort of confirmed by people who were actually in the room uh, that he said it. Okay, now that is that is indeed a swear, but is there, you know, that's a swear that's used in a pretty vile way, and many would say a, a pretty racist way. That's not what we're looking at in terms of the Tucker Awards and trying to uh, recognize. What is interesting is the media pickup of that incident, so that newsroom editors, both um, print media and television and radio, had to make decisions about whether they would report this news about Trump and this this epithet that he used for the countries in a kind of euphemistic way, or if they would just come out and not pull any punches. And it was very interesting to see that, by and large, newsroom editors decided you know we're going to we're going to say exactly what this word is, and so on the Tucker Awards for 2018, we actually recognized those editors for bravery by saying, you know, this this is newsworthy, this is important that we say exactly what it is. We're not going to beat around the bush, and we're going to tell you exactly what he said. And so sometimes what we see with swearing and, and taboo language is also the reactions that it causes, and in the case of news media, the decisions sometimes they have to make about whether to expurgate things or whether they're so newsworthy, as in this case, that we really need to know what was said. Steve Russian, uh, the sports columnist and uh, novelist and friend of this show, uh, has a term, obscene hangman, for when editors go like S blank blank T, which... (laughs) 
I think it's a great concept because that it is basically what is happening there. You know, I mean, everybody knows what the word is. I don't know, what is being accomplished by by playing obscene hangman? So another world leader, Angela Merkel, actually borrowed one of our bad terms or uh, strong language terms, and that would be spitstorm, right? She actually, in the, in a public utterance, did this. She did. Yeah, that was that was interesting because apparently in German, this English loan word, this borrowing s. Storm, spitstorm, as you uh, just euphemized it, is something that's become so common that yeah, it's it's perfectly fine for Angela Merkel to use it. Now she was speaking in German, but this this uh, English word went in there, and she was it was just a tech conference. This happened in early December, and she was recalling a moment when she had referred to the internet as uncharted territory, and she said that generated quite a. F-storm. And she used that English word. And so that generated a lot of uh, interesting reactions, too. The New York Times wrote a piece on it. And again, they decided it was newsworthy enough that they were that they were going to tell us exactly what this word was that Angela Merkel used. You know, again, the Times kind of has a history of trying not to say these words, but finding all sorts of circumlocutions to avoid saying them. So there was a lot of commentary about that, but it's interesting that Merkel's actually been using that word, as far as we know, since 2012. It was recognized the year before that by German linguists as the Anglicism of the year. It's even entered their sort of authoritative German dictionary. And so it's it's fascinating to see a language like German just decide well, rather than finding the German equivalent, we're just going to borrow this English swear word. And they seem to be able to use it much more freely than we can, at least, you know, with their political leaders even being able to use it. Well, you know, so that leads me to uh, actually, Jonathan, we're going to jump down to C2 here, because I think there's an interesting thing that happens when someone who is not primarily an English speaker, either Merkel in that case, speaking in German and as putting in, as you say, a loan word that happens to be strong language, or in the case of this NHL player, somebody whose primary language is Russian, he's trying to express himself in English. And he's, I think, trying to reassure us that his team, the Washington Capitals, uh, are not going to be as bad this year. But this is how it comes out. Uh, it just... I saying, we're not going to be sucked this year. We're the Stanley Cup champions. Yeah! Woo! So that would be Alex Ovechkin. And he says, I think, we're not going to be forking suck this year, which doesn't really... I don't know, grammatically, it doesn't really scan very well. And it also seems like a very strange rallying cry. Yeah, I mean, that was in the context of the uh, championship parade that the Washington Capitals were having after they won the Stanley oh, okay. Cup in June. And I think, I think what Ovechkin was doing there, he was sort of remembering how he made this promise that their team was not going to be terrible. And sure enough, not only are they not terrible, but they go ahead and win the Stanley Cup. But just that one soundbite of them saying, we're not going to be... Forking suck this year to use, you know, forking the way that they would use on the show The Good Place as a helpful euphemism. It was funny because, again, he had this imperfect grasp on the uh, the idiom that's not so 
the uh, native speaker of English might use it, but it was charming the way that he was clearly trying to swear like an American and coming up a bit short, but in the process coming up with his own kind of delightful twist on it. Right. And I think also perhaps available to him is the big poppy precedent, right? So after the Boston Marathon bombings, there was a ceremony at Fenway and big poppy said, this is our city. And he said it just booming and echoing all over the sound system uh, in Fenway Park. So uh, maybe maybe athletes get some kind of special dispensation when they're being unusually heartfelt. Would that be the case? I think that's true. And I mean, and that also speaks to this idea that when people swear in excitement or enthusiasm like that, it is seen as very, you know, an authentic expression of emotion. And sports players, especially when they're celebrating a great victory, are expected to react that way. Also, with sports players, when they are angry as well. <laughs> and there are plenty of cases that we've seen of sports figures who, you know, when they've just had it, they, uh, they swear up a storm in post-game interviews and that sort of thing. And so I think there was one case, uh, what was it, Manny Machado, I think, when he was still with the Orioles and he was upset with the Red Sox and he gave a, he gave a post-game interview that, that had just about like 30 F-bombs in a row. And I, we, we recognized it that year with the Tucker Award, again, for excellence in swearing in sports. So, yes, I think you're absolutely correct to say that our athletes, we do seem to give special dispensation for that kind of authentic display of emotion that comes through in swearing, whether they're being excited and enthusiastic or they're, being, you know, they're expressing anger or bitter resentment. Right. I'm almost amazed when, you know, quite frequently an athlete will be asked to wear a mic for an entire game. And I'm amazed. That, I mean, I'm sure they sort of, you know, they have a delay or something or they don't put everything on the air. But I'm amazed that, that it does come through. I just assume that they're swearing all the time, particularly football players who are just experiencing pain and frustration all the time. I just assume that they're just, you know, just one constant cascade. But maybe yeah, some people you would think yeah, so. And yeah. in fact, uh, there was a there was an NFL Films special that that they did on swearing, and they actually brought me in to talk about like why coaches swear so much on the sidelines because they had uh, all of this footage that they had of all of the audio of of uh, coaches and players swearing up a storm. So, yeah, in certain sports, definitely football, definitely baseball, too. I think that was something that, for instance, when Jim Bouton came out with the book Ball Four around 1970 or so, he sort of laid it all out. This is the way baseball players talk. And that was the first time anybody had really like tried to represent all of the swears that you know baseball players would just use as a matter of course. Up to that point, you, you know, the public would not, not necessarily have been aware. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of the culture of certain sports, and it's just the way that you're supposed to express yourself. And, and uh, now, more frequently, we see that spilling over into, into the public just because we get to eavesdrop a little more on uh, the way that they talk. So, Ben Zimmer, since we are uh, talking about uh, the way that language changes and possible innovation in language, maybe it's time to uh, skip ahead to the end of the evening and talk about the winner for the best forking swearing of 2018. And the Tucker goes to La La Land. No, that can't be right. No, let's see. No, it's David Simon. First of all, you don't actually have an award ceremony, I assume. No, just kind of a notional award ceremony. But we're just imagining we're giving out these awards. And we do let the winners know, like on social media, we tweet out the names and very often the, the winners respond and are, are, are very happy to learn that they've, that they've won an award that they knew nothing about. Yeah. <laughs> so. 
Because the acceptance speeches would be very interesting. Um, yeah, oh, absolutely. That would be wonderful. So David Simon, uh, the creator of The Wire and many other much esteemed forms of destination television, is the winner this year. Not so much for what he puts on TV, I think, but for how he comports himself on social media. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, I don't think he currently has a show on television, but, you know, um, as I said, giving out the award, that he's already earned his place in the pantheon of swearing because of The Wire. And, you know, that was back on HBO from 2002 and 2000 to 2008. Obviously, these shows on HBO, we already mentioned Veep, are able to uh, explore swearing far more than you could on, on regular broadcast television. And uh, The Wire had many great moments of, of swearing in it. But David Simon has continued that spirit through his social media presence, pretty much. And he had a really remarkable run of very creative obscenity over the course of 2018. He came up with just an endless number of insults that were very sweary. And very often he was insulting the powers that be at Twitter itself. He was actually suspended a couple of times over 2018 for what Twitter saw his bad behavior, and he came back from those suspensions and continued to sort of swear it up. And so he enjoys creating compounds using very often the F word or the S word um, in, these, in these compounds. So for instance, F mook, F bonnet, F stumble, F muzzle, F slug, F nut, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, with the S word, it might be S crisp or S squib. So this kind of compounding we've actually seen quite a lot lately, and there was one you know, popular insult that we recognized in past installments of the Tucker Awards, which is S. Gibbon, which was leveled at Donald Trump. And so now linguists have been talking about these sort of new compounds where you take, usually it's a, a one-syllable swear word, and then you add on a two-syllable word that could be an animal or it could be really anything to make a kind of a funny sounding epithet. That's now just being called a uh, S. Gibbon compound. And so David Simon proved himself to be quite the master of this kind of very creative, very innovative sort of swearing, and we had to recognize him as the overall winner for 2018. Right, yeah. So fork muzzle, for example, would be in that category. Uh, or, yes, exactly. Or fork spittle, all right. So, um, well, that, you know, and I often feel that, like, I, I like words like that, too, but I sort of feel like I can often get there without actually having to use, you know, one of the really strong words. Like, I don't know, can I say douche nozzle on this show? <laughs> I guess I'll, I guess well, I'll find nozzle out. nozzle is an excellent example of this, that sort of compounding. And, right. there, for, and people seem to be drawn to those particular types of, you know, insulting swears these days. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's, a, there's just a certain sound to it, a certain rhythm, a cadence to it that, that seems very pleasing and satisfying. And so we've been seeing that pro- proliferating all over the place. Right. I think because I think when you do it, what you're essentially implying is – I am not going to be content with the simple use of an epithet that you're familiar with. I'm not using some kind of easy expletive. I'm going to a little extra trouble to to create or to reach back and find a little extra syllable or two to apply to you. That's that's how great my contempt and anger towards you is. There's something about that, right? There's some attempt at artistry. I think so, and I think we owe a lot of that artistry to Scotland, actually. Scottish swearing <laughs> um, very often takes this approach, and we saw that actually in uh, 2016, I believe, when we gave a, a special Tucker Award to Scottish Twitter because of how they were swearing uh, in relation to Donald Trump. 
and calling him all sorts of names that year. Um, you may recall Trump had a golf course in yes. Scotland. He arrived there in 2016, soon after the Brexit vote, and talked about how they were you know, sort of claiming back their land. Even though Scotland was very anti-Brexit, they, they, you know, they had voted in large numbers against it. Um, and so Scottish Twitter sort of arose as one and came up with the most creative insults they could find. And very often they were of this form. It could be something like cockwomble or something like that. And, uh, but much more elaborate, very often with many modifying adjectives to make it just a, a long, beautiful uh, insult. And so the Scottish have this, this tradition that they call flighting of kind of ritual insults. <laughs> so I think that a lot of what we see now has that kind of Scottish flavor to it. All right. Well, now I understand our managing editor, Harriet Jones, in a whole new way. I thought it was just her. <laughs> I didn't realize. Well, just very, very quickly. I mean, you know, there's always like with the Oscars, every once in a while there'll be a movie that just drops, you know, in January and February and then, you know, falls out of the consciousness and maybe doesn't get considered the same way. So, I mean, we really have kicked off the year with this Tucker Award moment uh, in, in which Congresswoman Tlaib used a compound word, a four-syllable compound word that evokes uh, the Oedipus complex. Are you taking some pains to curate that and make sure that people don't forget about it by the time the year's over? Oh, for sure, yes. That that moment that you're talking about with uh, Rashida Tlaib will no doubt be recognized, you know, even, even when we're at the end of the year and looking back. That, you know, even though that just, just happened, you know, as you say, recently, just at the beginning of January, has attracted, obviously, lots and lots of commentary. That's, this is very often what I enjoy seeing the most is the reaction right. when there's a kind of a public moment of, of profanity like this and to see what people do with it. And, of course, the kind of the, the pearl-clutching reactions that we've been seeing, particularly from Republicans who think, oh, this is so indecorous, and including Donald Trump himself, saying that, she, that this was disgraceful, disgraceful that she would uh, use this word when she said uh, impeach the mother effer. Of course, you know, Donald Trump, he of asshole countries and locker room talk and all the rest is, is suddenly uh, offended by when it's uh, hurled back at him in his direction. And so uh, it's all, all very often very interesting to see this kind of hypocrisy or double standard. In this case, it seems largely motivated by the fact that it is a woman saying it rather than a man. Men are given somehow more leeway for this kind of, you know, public display of profanity. We've talked about athletes, but, you know, people in other walks of life, including, including the president, of course, is somehow uh, licensed to use what he would like to call locker room talk, um, even though this uh, congresswoman somehow is, is not allowed to say such a thing. So it, it, it puts into a kind of a stark relief the kinds of social constructs we have around swearing, what gender we associate it with, when is, when is it okay to say, when is it not okay to say. And it tells us a lot about sort of the, the sociology of swearing when something like this happens. All right. Well, uh, we've been talking to Ben Zimmer. He is one of the presenters of the fourth annual Tucker Awards for Excellence in Swearing, which can be read about uh, on the blog uh, Strong Language, a sweary blog about swearing. Uh, he's also a linguist, lexicographer, and language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Ben, thanks for doing this. Thanks. It's been fun. And uh, to the rest of you, it's the end of our show. Thanks for tuning in. Now, F off. No, I'm kidding. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. You can't say <laughs> on the radio or... Or, or, you can't even say I'd like to, you someday, 
Unless you're a doctor with a very large So I bet you they won't play this song on the radio I bet you they dare not well program it I bet you they're in old program directors Will think it's a load of horse <laughs>